And hello from Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News. This is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast where we take a look at K-12 policy and the politics surrounding K-12. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. And we start this week by looking at one of the State Department of Education's most high-profile hires who doesn't actually work for the State Department of Education. You took a look at Duncan Robb and his employment status and his contract, and it's a convoluted tale. Give us the uh, the summary here. It is. Uh, Kevin, I spent the first part of my week, as you know, kind of digging into this and sorting through contracts and records requests with the State Department of Education. But uh, Duncan Robb was identified by the State Department of Education as the replacement uh, to Tim Corder, who was kind of the policy officer, the legislative liaison, and left unexpectedly during the last uh, right, legislative the session. session. Mm-hmm. And so they've got... Um, they identified this new person as their chief policy officer. His name is Duncan Robb. He had worked in Washington, D.C. at an education think tank, had previously helped out uh, Superintendent Sherry Ybarra as she developed her strategic plan. But I came to find out after looking through some contracts with our data analyst, Randy Schrader, that Duncan isn't employed by Sherry Ybarra. Duncan isn't employed by the state of Idaho. In fact, Duncan is employed by an out-of-state temporary employment agency called DePaul Industries. And I thought this was unusual for a number of reasons, but the State Department of Education team has said that Duncan's essentially going to become the public face uh, of their department, responsible for walking the public and the lawmakers through Sherry Ybarra's vision for education. One of the most... If the job is anything like Tim Porter's job, Duncan Robb is going to be Ybarra's uh, emissary at the State House. I mean, he's probably going to be the one who testifies... Uh, he's probably going to be the one who who kind of advances uh, Ibarra's legislative agenda. I mean, this is a high-profile position. Yeah, one of the highest uh, positions on the organizational chart, but also the only uh, person on Sherry Ibarra's leadership team on that org chart that has this arrangement with a temporary uh, employment agency. And so I thought that in itself was unusual. So, so why did they do it, and what does it mean for taxpayers? Sure. The reason that they did it is because uh, Ybarra's office ran out of money for salaries. And and the reason that that happened is because after Tim Corder left, uh, they promoted uh, Tim McMurtry to a deputy superintendent's position. He was actually Superintendent Ybarra's old boss at the Mountain Home School District. He had been working in kind of a contractor role, but he was promoted to a staff position into a deputy superintendent. And so they used salary money for that. And they ran out of salary money. So it's like the NFL. They kind of ran up against the top of the salary cap. Yeah, they did. And so what they did was they took money out of their general fund budget uh, to pay uh, for this new position. But uh, they didn't uh, have him on as a full-time state employee. They went through this temp agency. What it means for taxpayers is this temp agency, DePaul Industries out of Oregon, received a no-bid contract from the State Department of Education for this employment arrangement. And they're also receiving a $35,000 fee. It's identified as a markup mm-hmm. fee um, on the contract for Duncan Robb. Because newsflash, these employment agencies don't work for free. They, right. they get a cut. Right, ex- exactly. And so I, I want to emphasize that uh, State Department of Education <coughs> spokesman Jeff Church said that the administration is comfortable uh, with this arrangement for the employment, and they're also comfortable uh, with the cost. They say they're not paying uh, state benefits to Duncan Rob, and so therefore uh, they do receive a savings, and that's why they were comfortable working with the temp agency. But it's kind of a complicated 
convoluted employment situation between the contract and the temp agency in there, the fact that it wasn't bid. The State Department of Education says that uh, as an elected constitutional officer in the state of Idaho, Sherry Ybarra, like the governor, has an exemption from purchasing laws because uh, if you remember, uh, most state contracts for purchasing for services, uh, there are different thresholds, but over $50,000 generally required by law to be put out to a public sealed bidding process. The State Department of Education says Ybarra, as an elected official, has an exemption uh, for that. And in the meantime, Duncan Robb is working in the State Department of Education's offices. I mean, he's got... I've been to his office. It's right next door to Sherry Ybarra's office. He has a computer. He has a furnished office. Um, And so, yeah, he's treated as a normal State Department of Education employee. He receives an evaluation. He goes to staff meetings. He has an office that he works out of across the street from the State Capitol building. And uh, so if you want to learn a little bit more about this arrangement, it does get a little complicated, uh, but it was an unusual uh, arrangement, and so that's why I chose uh, to write about it. But you can check the story out at Idaho Education. No, it's an interesting watchdog piece, so do check it out. Yeah, moving on, Kevin, I wanted to talk to you. You've had a chance to start sifting through some of the campaign finance reports uh, that have come out in the last couple days leading up to these elections. What was you found a couple of interesting things? Mm-hmm. Um, what did you find, and, and why might people be interested? Well, this is kind of an interesting filing period because it gives you a sense a month out from the election of where some of the hot races might be. So, what I did with the legislative uh, sunshine reports that were due on Monday was I just went through all of the contested races and just started tallying up how much has been raised in these respective races, just to get a sense. It's kind of crowdsourcing to try to figure out where the uh, the most competitive races might be because you you look and you see where are uh, individuals uh, putting money, where are industry packs putting money, where are fellow legislators putting money. So it's not scientific, but it's a fairly uh, it, I think it's a fairly illustrative look at uh, the state of play here uh, four weeks out from the election. Not many surprises when you look at the big money races. The the most money raised in any legislative race this past cycle is in district uh, is in the Lewiston legislative district where you have House Minority Leader John Rushu once again in a very uh, competitive uh, general election. Uh, more than fifty-one thousand, close to fifty-two thousand dollars has been raised in this last cycle, and no surprise here. Uh, John Rushi. Uh, defeated Mike Kingsley up there in 2014 by only 48 votes. And this is a rematch, so hardly surprising that this is a competitive uh, race. And and not many surprises really at the top. You know, District 6, the Lewiston District, is is pretty competitive. Uh, The Wood River Valley, District 26, that's a competitive district. We've got a couple of uh, fairly big money races going on there. But a couple of surprises as well. Going way up north, District 1, one of the more expensive uh, legislative races is shaping up involving Heather Scott, the very uh, some very controversial uh, first-term representative up uh, in North Idaho, is getting a very competitive race uh, from a Democrat. So we kind of break down these numbers. We, we look at some of the hot spots, and, and we also kind of look at kind of where the money comes from, too. Yeah, and you had a chance also, Kevin, to look at some of the money uh, that some of the current office holders are spreading around uh, to other candidates and to other incumbents. Just real quickly, uh, that struck me as interesting, but what, what was one notable thing you found? Well, I took a close look at some of 
the money that's being contributed by legislative leaders to other legislative candidates or other sitting legislators. House Speaker Scott Bedke is probably the most uh, aggressive at this, the most (laughs) systematic about it. Um, As I looked at it, he's given more than $18,000 just in this past cycle to more than three dozen legislators and legislative candidates uh, around the state. I mean, there there are some that show up in the candidates' sunshine reports that aren't yet in in Speaker Bedke's sunshine reports, so it's a little bit hazy, but definitely... In the $20,000 range, what I found was curious and, and kind of focused in on, on my blog earlier this week. Back in the spring, uh, Bedke contributed $1,000 to Rich Wills, a sitting legislator, uh, committee chair, uh, somebody he had served with for a number of years. Wills lost in the primary, one of the upsets from the primary. So in the fall, uh, Bedke turns around and gives a $500 contribution to Christy Zito, who is likely going to be the next legislator out of that district, uh, Zito, who upset Wills in the primary. So kind of an interesting turn of events. And and I break down kind of what this all might mean, this whole trend towards member-to-member donations, that sometimes it's about helping the party win an election, but also sometimes it's about influence. And Keep in mind there is a closed-door Republican leadership election following the election to determine things like the Speaker of the House. And uh, keep that in mind uh, when you look at these Mm -hmm. donations uh, and and the campaign contributions that have been spread around when you talk about influence. Kevin, that's a great report. You can find it at Idaho Ed News. I know you will continue uh, to follow the money and have updates between now and Election Day. So this week we've been kind of fanning out, but both of us have been uh, visiting some schools to try to get a handle on the literacy initiative, the rollout of the literacy initiative. Your travels uh, took you to Horseshoe Bend. What are they doing up there? Horseshoe Bend is taking a new approach uh, specifically to how uh, they're working on literacy instruction at the elementary school level. Uh, I went up there earlier this week with our multimedia journalist, Andrew Reed, and met with their lead teacher at the elementary school to talk about this program. And it was kind of born out of Uh, some disappointment and confusion in Horseshoe Bend. A few years ago, they found themselves the recipient of a low two-star rating in Idaho's old accountability model. It surprised some of the teachers there. It upset uh, some of the teachers and and some of the community members there. And so they decided uh, that they needed to kind of revamp what they were doing with instruction. And so what the district did with the help of a capacity builder who came in Uh, They bought a new assessment test, the MAP test, and they started testing elementary school children three times a year. Uh, When they first got to school in the fall, at Christmas break, and then at the end of the school year. And based on those first two tests, they identified areas where students were behind in their skill sets. And what they did was every day they have a half-hour intervention class period where they break students down into groups of three or four based on their ability levels, and they focus on the skills that the students are behind in. They do that every day, and it's been going on for a little over a year, and the lead teacher over there, Cora Larson, is really encouraged by some of the initial test results on the MAP test. Last year, at the end of the year on their final MAP test, they were seeing growth in the 90th percentile nationwide uh, in terms of where their students started to where they finished at the end of the year. Mm -hmm. Um, Early results, uh, but it's powerful stuff as far as the educators at Horseshoe Bend 
are concerned. It's interesting to me, they're embracing data, they're talking about uh, having to have buy-in from the teachers, uh, from parents, about having to redo their instruction model and be really, really uh, faithful to their curriculum. And uh, it's kind of interesting, but if you want to check it out, uh, we had a report up with a little video that we published on Thursday at Idaho Ed News. And this is part of a bigger issue uh, that kind of jumps off into what you're going to be spending the rest of this year on, Kevin, which is the state uh, literacy plans that school districts are coming up with. This is going to be Horseshoe Bend's literacy plan going forward as well. And we'll be rolling out a lot more coverage of the, the literacy initiative and the rollout of the initiative. We're going to get into some classrooms and, and hopefully fan out and do even more of this in the weeks and months to come. Okay. Well, sounds good. Well, I want to move on. We have a couple, um, we have a couple more uh, topics to get through from headlines from this week. But I wanted to ask you uh, about some of the uh, projects that you were working on with charter schools, charter school dollars, Kevin. Yeah, this is a mind-numbingly complicated process, <laughs> but this is a, a 2013 law that uh, allows charter schools to get a, a cut of state funding to help offset building costs. Um, Charter schools obviously uh, are in a different situation than traditional schools. They can't uh, they, they can't collect uh, property taxes for buildings or for building upkeep. So the number, uh, the bottom line figure here is uh, 4.7 million. That's how much uh, the charter schools received last year to offset building costs. That number is up from where it was a year ago. It probably is going to go up even more in the next year. But what I wanted to do in this story is kind of take a look at what does that mean for some of these charter schools? How is the money being used? And for some charter schools that have done expansions, uh, this money is definitely a factor. It, it doesn't cover everything, but it is definitely a factor in some of the, uh, the building projects that they're taking on. But for other charter schools, even ones that are potentially in expansion mode, the money can be used as just sort of uh, general fund money, as just sort of... Uh, you know, put into daily operations. Uh, that's what's going on in the, the Xavier Charter School in Twin Falls, one that is probably going to be looking at expansion down the road, but they're not there yet. So the funding, you know, really, because it comes with no strings attached, uh, the charter schools can use it as they uh, as they wish. All right, well, that sounds good. Like you said, $4.7 million, that's up from $3.4 million. Uh, the year before. If you want to take a look uh, at uh, the situation, it got uh, good coverage this week. And you can get a breakdown if you're interested in charter schools in your area. What did they receive? We have that available to you as well. Okay. I think that takes care of a lot of this week's headlines. Uh, but next week, we're both going to be uh, kind of busy. I am going to be heading up to North Idaho uh, for the Public School Finance Interim Committee meeting in Post Falls. This is a follow-up to a series of meetings that they've had across the state, but one of the recent <coughs> meetings in Pocatello in late September, lawmakers got their first look at um, the cost that it might take to rewrite the school funding formula, some $131 million. I will be there for the follow-up meeting uh, to see if we have any new information. Kevin, I know um, that you're going to be following the next debate next week to see if education is a topic. And right? previewing the next debate, because as anybody knows who's watched the past uh, two presidential debates, there's been a lot talked about, uh, education not being one of them, uh, very little discussion of of education, and I don't think any discussion really of K-12. So we're going to kind of take a look at that and, and maybe try to preview what to expect or, or, or not expect on that front when the candidates uh, square off in Las Vegas on Wednesday night. 
Okay. All right. That sounds good. That gets us all caught up. I want to let folks know that they can uh, follow us at Idaho Ed News on Twitter for all the latest. And if you connect with our Facebook page, Idaho Education News, we're planning a couple of Facebook Live podcasts uh, between now and the uh, Christmas holiday where we're hoping to have a couple guests on and open it up to questions from our listeners and viewers on social media. So if you connect with our Facebook page, we'll have more information on that as we get it scheduled. Meanwhile, I want to thank everybody, as always, for listening. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week.